You're listening to Conversations, brought to you by TechSquare ATL. All right, all right. Welcome to the Hump Day Exchange. Uh, I'm your host, Scott Henderson, a.k.a. Scotty Hendo on the interwebs. Uh, we're recording in front of a live audience, or at least one that sounds like a live audience right, audience right here in Tech Square, the heart of Atlanta's tech scene. And we're excited to bring you this episode. Um, Hump Day Exchange is a collaborative effort of Sandbox ATL, ATDC, and Georgia Tech's Scheller College of Business. Tonight, our topic is artificial intelligence. And we're going to talk with three experts who are, are, each, are each working in the field of artificial intelligence in different ways. Um, if you're listening to our show for the first time, here's how the program will go. First, I'll invite each guest into the hot seat for a one-on-one -on -one conversation focused on their perspective. Once all three are through, we'll gather them for a roundtable conversation where we, we get to ask questions of each other. Um, then we'll finish with a town hall-style Q&A with our live audience guests. So um, let's... Uh, uh, at least say hello uh, to our guest today. They're Dr. David Joyner, who's an instructor in Udacity's Artificial Intelligence Nano Degree and a lecturer at Georgia, Georgia Tech. Rory Ross, Russo, VP of Engineering at uh, the ATDC startup Predicto. And Jackson Morgan, a Georgia Tech student and winning team captain of not only the AT&T IoT Hackathon, but also the most recent WorldPay FinTech Hackathon. Genius guy. So uh, we're going to talk to them in a moment, but uh, first let's set the stage. Here's a quick primer. So Siri, Alexa, Netflix, Pandora, Nest, your car's accident avoidance system, Tesla's autopilot, anytime you take off or land in an airplane, you're surrounded by artificial intelligence, or as we call it, AI. AI is everywhere in our movies, our books, and our media. Uh, Westworld, Ex Machina, and more. You know, think about how many different places. But most amazing to me is we're really only at the conception of this technology. Um, and I, I wanted to at least uh, refer back to the, the holy book of Wikipedia, and quote you from the scripture of what is artificial intelligence. So if you if you never really run into this or if you heard it and you, you've been just kind of bluffing your way through what AI is, here's what Wikipedia has to say about it. Uh, artificial intelligence is intelligence exhibited by machines. In computer science, the field of AI research defines itself as the study of intelligent agents. Any device that perceives its environment and takes actions that maximize its chance of success at some goal. The central problem or Goals, central problems or goals of AI research include reasoning, knowledge, planning, learning, natural language processing, perception, and the ability to move and manipulate objects. In the 21st century, AI techniques, both hard and soft, have experienced a resurgence following concurrent advances in computer power, sizes of training sets, and theoretical understanding, and AI techniques have become an essential part of the technology industry, helping to solve many challenging problems in computer science, thus said the book of Wikipedia. So even as we get our minds wrapped around the technology, we're already seeing the economic impact of AI, uh, not just on blue-collar jobs. It's, it's increasingly becoming more uh, part of the white-collar professional uh, reality as well. According to uh, Quartz Media, one Japanese insurance company, uh, Fukuoka Mutual Life Insurance, is reportedly replacing 34 human insurance claim workers with IBM Watson Explorer starting this year. Uh, and an Israeli insurance startup, Lemonade, has raised $60 million on the idea of replacing brokers and paperwork with bots and machine learning. I wonder if they will call you with hot stock tips or not. So um, whether all this scares you or makes you giddy with anticipation, this conversation is for you. So cue Wagner's also Spruch Zarathustra and gaze deep into the glowing eye, the red eye of HAL 9000. We're diving deep into the world of artificial intelligence. In today's episode, we've entitled... Dummies talking about AI. So let's bring our first guest into the hot seat. Please welcome Dr. David Joyner from the Georgia Tech Design Intelligence Lab. 
So uh, an educator with a personal passion for leveraging new technologies to improve student learning, Dr. Joyner is an instructor, as I mentioned, in Udacity's AI Nano degree and a lecturer at Georgia Tech as part of the Design and Intelligent Lab, a winner of many teaching awards. Uh, he serves as the general course manager on the Georgia Tech Online Master of Science in Computer Science. And footnote, one of the reasons why Fast Company just named Georgia Tech the only university to its 2017 most innovative company. So, Let's start with a question for you, Dr. Joyner. How do you explain AI to your grandmother or a very small child? So, <laughs> uh, I have a two and a half year old, so I don't explain her, it to her quite yet, but uh, when she's a little bit older, um, to me, AI is anytime we're trying to create a, um, a computer or a machine that can do something that previously only humans were able to do. What's interesting about that kind of approach to AI, as well as being somewhat simplistic and somewhat more accessible, is that it means as soon as you solve an AI problem, it's no longer an AI problem because now it's no longer true that only a human can do it. Now you have a machine that can do it. Uh, a good example of that is um, optical character recognition, OCR, is a technique for um, scanning in documents such that they're converted to plain text. Uh, it was created back in the 80s. And back then, that was an AI problem. That was something only humans could do. Only a human could read a document and transcribe it into actual um, you know, readable text. But then computers solved it, and now it's no longer really an AI problem. It's just a website you go to to upload your documents and get them transcribed. Um, when we convert them to, those, uh, to things that machines can do, though, we introduce a lot of power because suddenly they're distributable, they're universally accessible, they're not distracted, they're not prone to all the things that humans tend to be prone to. So when we develop something like um, Autopilot for uh, a Tesla, which is really kind of adaptive lane control, um, the power of it is not necessarily that you know, the human was not good at doing that, but that the human was doing so many different things at once. So once we offload it, you know, have a dedicated system that can do that. Uh, so that's kind of artificial intelligence in the narrow sense. Um, it's not too exciting, in my opinion at least, to talk about developing AI agents that can do all these tiny little things that humans can do. The exciting thing is developing AI that can do all the tiny little things that humans can do, so it can do everything at once. So if you, if you break AI into the different components, like let's say we're disassembling a, an engine, uh, a small engine, what are the main parts of AI? So I think actually your, your description of Wikipedia obviously is, is pretty good. Um, an AI agent is characterized by the fact that it interacts with its environment, so it has to perceive its environment and then do something in return to the environment. So it's really characterized by that input and output. Within the kind of the mind of the AI, uh, we tend to break into th uh, three kind of layers. Um, they go by different names, but one uh, kind of naming scheme is the reactive, cognitive, and metacognitive layer. A reactive is just the layer of an AI agent that is reacting directly to stimuli. There's no cognition, there's no deliberation. Um, to draw an analogy to a person, if someone throws a ball at my face right now, please don't, um, I will reach up and try to defend myself. I won't think, hmm, I should probably defend myself against that thing flying at my face. No, it's just a, it's a reaction. Um, there's a cognitive layer, which is where we kind of get into reasoning and learning and remembering things and actually kind of looking back at what our past experiences or reasoning over a difficult problem, manipulating symbols, things like that. And that's where a lot of the uh, interesting AI happens because those are, the, those are the things that are more uniquely human. And there's also a metacognitive layer that AI agents, I think, are, are really just now starting to get to, which is when you think about your own process of thinking and think about, you know, those study habits or that method of, you know, memorizing some material didn't really work for me. And you're reasoning over not the world outside your mind, but you're reasoning over your mind itself. And we're starting to see some AI agents that can do some things like that, um, some machine learning methods that themselves will tailor what they do to select the mechanisms or select the, the algorithms that have been most effective in the past. So they're not reasoning over the world their reasoning over their own reasoning. So those are kind of the, the ways we break up the, the reasoning hmm. that they do. 
So, so what are the known unknowns of AI? So I think there's a lot of those kind of the, the philosophical level. So there's the, the questions <clears throat> of consciousness and creativity of, can we actually create an AI agent that's conscious like you and me? That's, in my opinion, more of a philosophical debate and not one you ever actually want to go down to without copious amounts of alcohol. Uh, instead, what you want to, to look at are the... And that's if you're of age. We do yes, have exactly. uh, middle schoolers <laughs> in the audience today and so. they're drinking soda. <laughs> yes. Um, so outside of that, though, there's some interesting, I think, known unknowns regarding how AI integrates with society right now. So we're looking at kind of the emergence of things like self-driving cars and the questions of liability and jobs and things like that and how those are going to fundamentally change the way we interact with the world because suddenly it's like we have you know a lot more people effectively out there that can work a lot cheaper. Um, there's also some interesting uh, technological issues though um, facing AI right now. One is that the majority of the really effective AI methods we see right now rely on you giving them lots and lots of data. So you may read about um, IBM Watson that's doing um, cancer screening and can actually be more effective or as effective as human doctors at um, cancer screening. But it relies on the fact that it's had millions and millions and millions of scans to process through. And that's what makes it really more effective is it can scan more scans than any human doctor ever could and process them more systematically. But how does AI react in situations where it doesn't have you know, enormous quantities of data? How does it interact when you have you know, one specific instance and what can it draw from that one specific instance? I think that's one of the major issues that's gonna face it because we always have the most difficulty taking care of that last little portion of experiences. So taking care of 90% of, of driving, for example, is pretty easy. But that last 1% of that duck flying into the road or that you know stroller flying into a crosswalk, those are the things that are difficult. And you're not going to have, hopefully, millions of sets or millions of examples of that for an AI agent to learn from. So that's the, I think that's one of the things they'll deal with as it becomes more and more common in, in everyday life. Yeah, it is, it is amazing because um, I was watching uh, uh, one of the Google folks in charge of their uh, autonomous vehicle program uh, walk us through the, the, the actual, the one um, accident that they had uh, and what actually what happened. But then he, before he did that, he, he showed us the highlight reel of out of all of the, all of the uh, experiences their cars have had, the craziest situations they've ever seen on the road, mm -hmm. right? I mean... A car comes up and there, there's a there's a human with a chair swinging around in, in the street. I mean, what do you do? That's not something you. Yeah, you've never uh, seen that before. Crazy stuff. Crazy yeah, and that's stuff. the the interesting issue I think, as far as like liability and things like that are concerned, is that whenever a self-driving car or a Tesla gets into even the slightest accident, it it's big news. But yet, thousands of people die every day in car accidents. But in those cases, usually the person who is you know, suffering is either under their own control or they're at the whim of someone else who is under their own control and liable. What is it when you're in a car and you know the right thing to do, but you're not driving the car and it drives you into a wall and hurts you? Mm. Those kind of issues are the ones that I think are going to be, be really key to solve as AI becomes more and more um, common in everyday per, uh, people's lives. So uh, Kevin Kelly, who's a um, great writer um, and future, future uh, what is he called, a techno-optimist, uh, was part of the Whole Earth Catalog, was found, uh, one of the executive editors of Wired, written many books, and his most recent is The Inevitable. Uh, and it, it posits that AI is going to become a public utility uh, and that we're going to see a variety of AI species, right? So 
we're thinking there's one kind of AI, but the fact that once AI starts creating, it will start creating its own usages. So um, do you agree with the, both of those notions? I think so. I'm glad you described him as a techno optimist, because in reading about it, my thought was I, I must be a cynic because I don't you know, I, I love this idea and I really hope this is the direction things go. But at the same time, I see a major risk of it going in very different directions. So AI can be a great equalizer by opening up computational resources and reasoning power to a much broader you know, segment of the population. But at the same time, it can be a great centralizer because right now, you know, if you're at the top of a company and you have run a bunch of factories and things like that, you rely on thousands of people to to make your your company run. And if you, you know, tick them all off, then you're going to suffer. If AI goes in a different direction than the one he's describing, you could have a future where you don't have to worry about ticking off all your workers because the people at the top of a company like that own literally everything. They own the means of production, the means of maintenance. They own the things that maintain the things that maintain. They own all of it. And suddenly you enter a, a world where the rest of us aren't necessary, like has always been you know, kind of projected of AI could replace all the jobs one day. But not only are the rest of us not necessary, the rest of us aren't benefiting either because what benefit do we do we deserve if we're not able to to contribute? So I think his view of it is a very optimistic view and the view that I hope happens, but I think we have to be careful of the opposite direction it could go in. So uh, if, if someone's listening uh, or here in the audience or online, um, how can individuals get a more robust uh, primer of AI online? Where can I go and learn more? Yeah, so like you said, when you introduced me, um, I'm one of the instructors for Udacity's AI nanodegree program. Uh, Udacity is a uh, startup that runs um, online educational programs teaching kind of cutting-edge skills, so really teaching the things that you, you can't learn anywhere else, things like deep learning and artificial intelligence. Um, so uh, we have an AI nanodegree that you can enroll in, um, do some projects, study some of the foundational material in AI taught by um, people like Sebastian Thrun and Peter Norvig and Thad Starner, who if there was a Mount Rushmore of AI, they would probably all, all be on it, um, to learn from, uh, from them about the kind of the core principles of AI and then apply it to some some of those modern problems the modern AI problems that five years from now won't be AI problems anymore but right now they are uh, things like um, natural language processing and speech recognition and computer vision the things that go into um, driving things like Siri and self-driving cars and everything like that um, I also teach a class at Georgia Tech called knowledge-based uh, artificial intelligence co-instruct with my um, PhD advisor Ashok Goyle uh, it's available for free on Udacity as well for anyone to go and check out so you can go and learn about it um, from there, as well as um, some of the other Georgia Tech classes on AI and machine learning are available uh, up at Udacity as well. So um, uh, before I let you go, uh, where can folks find you on the interwebs? So I'm at davidjoiner.net, uh, J-O-Y-N-E-R, and um, everything else about me on the internet is hopefully linked to from that website, so yeah. Google just your way. So uh, hey, you, you made it through the hot seat. I Round did. Applause for <laughs> Thank you. Dr. David Joyner, and let him out, and as he leaves, We'll bring in Roy Russo, Vice President of Engineering for Predicto. So, uh, welcome to you uh, as well. So, a little, uh, little love here. Thank you. I got my, my aunts and a couple uncles and cousins in the audience that help us it's, out. Uh, it's Russo? That's Russo, cool. Russo. Yeah, it's all right. Mean, tell your mom and dad it's now Russo. <laughs> not Russo. Sorry. Roy Russo. Rue. So, that's, that's, all right, so you still are Vice President of Engineering for Predicto. I right? still am. Yeah. All right, so um, 15 years of experience as an entrepreneur, a senior information technology manager. That's a, such a long word. IT manager, how about that? Uh, Roy, that's how I pronounce it, right? That's, right. Roy. that's right. Roy. Unless you're French. Knows, I guess. Yeah. knows what it takes to design and build large-scale software solutions. He, he hails from Florida. We won't keep that against him. Uh, and he studied economics as an undergraduate, which that's is right. an interesting that's thing. Um, 
programming languages uh, that you know, it's like an alphabet soup and encyclopedia with a healthy dose of open software that he's been playing around with. Is that correct as well? Yeah, my, where'd, you, my where'd you get my bio? This is I did, uh, pretty this amazing. Is and <laughs> his current company, uh, watch out, I'll be here at, uh, if you need anyone like at any public events like weddings or funerals, uh, if you need someone to give that eulogy, uh, just let me know. I'm not, not expecting you to die anytime soon. <laughs> we still have time. Um, his current company, Predicto, is a proud ATDC company and just closed $4 million in funding. Right. So if you need money, ask him for some. Uh, and with an eye to the European market. Nope. So, uh, let's, uh, Roy, uh, what's your elevator pitch for Predicto? Uh, and um, where did the idea come from? Sure. So um, the idea came from uh, my CEO, actually, the, the one of the original founders. Um, he was working at a at a uh, large consulting company. I believe it was uh, Hitachi Consulting. Um, and hey, there, was an, there was an oil pipeline that had burst. Um, and somehow he got involved into this oil pipeline burst disaster and started thinking like, you know, this thing's causing a lot of damage, big mess. It could have been avoided. Um, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's money here, right? Like, like a true businessman, right? Sniffing out where the cash is, right? Um, so it started there. Um, he, he wrangled the team together, um, started building it out, and um, what it's become now, um, after uh, I'd say about three years, um, is exactly I think what, what he envisioned. So elevator pitch, um, we, I guess in layman's terms, we tell people something's going to break before it breaks. Um, now, uh, to an executive, um, especially on the maintenance side, um, think trains, planes, uh, shipping, cargo, um, that's music to their ears, right? So um, these are typically, um, I'm beyond the elevator pitch at this point, right? Mm -hmm. um, you get my attention. Now, okay. now, All now right. you so get my five-minute uh, window <laughs> uh, here. But they're, 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 typically, they're typically really large assets, really expensive assets, machinery, uh, we call them assets, um, that uh, tend to move around, right? Um, because so very expensive, very very mobile stuff that are, have a higher propensity for they, they damage have, and wear and tear. Um, and, and when they do fail, um, it is extremely costly uh, to uh, repair them, right? So you want to avoid uh, a locomotive getting stranded in the middle of Utah, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you want to avoid a freighter getting just, you know, stranded in the middle of the Atlantic, right? Um, and that's where we come in. Right, so we're able to tell you, we, we typically have a 30-day out um, uh, view of the world. Uh, we're taking in gobs of data, uh, and we truly are big data. I know that word gets thrown around a lot. Um, but that, that data is then used um, for uh, model training and predictions, and it's a 30-day out window. So um, if there is a high uh, um, risk of a locomotive, some asset, uh, failing within the next 30 days for a specific reason. So we, we do go down to the atomic level on why this thing may fail. Um, somebody in the maintenance department can go ahead and pull the trigger and pull the train in for depot, uh, for depot work, right? So um, your, the tagline that we use is moving uh, unplanned maintenance to planned. Hmm. Right? So hmm. you're saving customers money. So, so with your, your recent funding, um, you guys have an eye to Europe. So... I'm curious, um, what, what are the differences between the EU and, and the U.S. market when it comes to the they're, awareness of they're, AI? They're actually, they're actually um, there's actually several. Uh, on, on the business side, I'd say that our European customers 
rail, shipping, aviation, um, are more embracing of new technology, which is odd. Um, I would expect the U.S. to be uh, more, I don't know, um, maverick, right? Or more accepting of, of, of new technologies. But um, so I see that a lot in Europe with our customers. Uh, they're, they're willing to, to try out uh, new things, right? And especially during the, this AI machine learning hype cycle that we're in, right? Um, the other thing there that, that, that I've noticed is um, they, they tend to um, simply work, um, I guess, better with you, right? In, in, in furnishing, um, I guess there's less politics within their, within their organizations. Um, what I find in the U.S., um, typically executives will go with IBM. Uh, you heard David mention Watson. Um, we've been up against Watson. Um, we've been up against GE. We've been up against the other players in the space. Um, and that's typically happening here in the U.S., mm -hmm. right, where, where executives would rather go with, you know, I don't get fired buying yeah. IBM than... Yeah, never get yeah. fired for hiring IBM, right? Yeah. Right. Hmm. So um, where, do you, where do you see the, the greatest commercial opportunities for AI? I mean, obviously, you guys are in, in this, this, you know, so, yeah, this I, space, but... If you weren't in this space, where, where do you see the greatest opportunities? Um, I think everybody would probably agree the greatest opportunities, uh, what's, what's on the horizon that will be evident to all of us as a society um, are self-driving cars, um, self-driving freight, trucking, right? I think ubiquity will be here and it'll be obvious. Um, what's not so obvious and, and may have bigger dollar signs um, is AI applications in healthcare, AI applications in uh, financial services. Um, that, that's already there, right? You just don't hear about it, right? Mm. So. so it is interesting to think about that um, automated freight and all, you know, with the port of Savannah and the dredging that's going on, mm -hmm. the, the sheer amount of trucking traffic that they're expecting to the point where there are here in Georgia also, you know, they're going to be building dedicated trucking lanes, you know to go through that. Is there, you know, with, with Georgia and Atlanta being such a transportation logistics hub, how do you see AI fitting into that? I think, I think long range trucking um, is an easier sale and will probably come sooner uh, than we think. It's the last mile that's the, the trouble. Um, the Atlanta Metro, uh, any big city, any little city, uh, doesn't necessarily want this 20-ton thing, right, uh, driving through its um, um, driving through its streets uh, w without a human controller, right? Um, so what I would expect to see probably within the next 10 years, um, I'm not as hopeful that it's right around the corner in the next two years, uh, like some may be. Um, I would expect to see long-range freight to have its own dedicated lanes, right, mm -hmm. on interstates. But once you arrive at, let's say, a 285 point, right, um, now you're in the last mile, uh, that I would expect uh, a truck driver to step in and, and run that last mile. Mm. Right. So um, when, when does AI take the place of a VP of engineering? Uh, I've met a lot of VPs of engineering that could probably be replaced by a script. Uh, so uh, um, so that's, that's interesting because it gets to the core of, of the job, right? A VP of engineering at, at, a, at, a, at a large public firm is very, very different than what I do day to day, right? Um, I, I don't, for one thing, I don't think a VP of engineering can sit here and talk to you, uh, if he's an AI thing, maybe one day, I don't know. Um, you know, I, 
I do get my hands dirty. Uh, in a startup, the VP of engineering is coding, right? He's building things. He's architecting software. Um, I, I think we're a long way away of, uh, of seeing um, AI take the role of a software developer um, or take the role of a software architect. Um, that's just me. Now, there are soft skills the VP of engineering does, right? Um, does AI play a role there? You know, when, when I have to deal with HR issues or, or uh, you know, vacation policies and all these little things, um, maybe, maybe those things could be automated, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, why, why do you really need me sitting there nodding and signing little pieces of paper, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe. So, so who, who within the, a company is, is, is most at risk to an AI uh, solution? Um, I'd, I'd say you're probably already seeing it in startups um, where, uh, you know, over the last 20 years, I remember always having a, a bookkeeper, a, 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 CT, a, a CFO with his whole, you know, group of, you know, bean counters, right? Um, that division inside of a company seems to be shrinking uh, overnight. So I think a lot of that is, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I'd attribute it completely to AI, but certainly to automation uh, and, and cloud. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So, Roy, uh, where where can folks find you on the interwebs? So, just predicto.com. Uh, it's p r e d i k t o. Dot com. And then I'm on LinkedIn. And if someone sees you in public, it's Roy Russo. Just. Just. <laughs> yeah. Just, all right. You made yeah. it through, Roy. Yeah. All right. Congratulations. <laughs> all right. As, as he vacates uh, his his hot seat, we're going to welcome Jackson Morgan. Uh, Georgia Tech student uh, and winning team captain of several hackathons, not just one or two, there's plenty of them. Um, uh, it, for a guy who's scheduled to get out of Georgia Tech with, uh, with his degree this year, right? Oh, my God, 2017? Well, actually, December. I December. worked for a startup part-time one okay. semester and need to take a decreased amount of credits. All right, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Jackson, you've already racked up an impressive resume. You've published a paper on cryptocurrency and developing economies. You've held programming internships for IBM, uh, a, a TechSquare startup called Rescour, Yahoo, Cox Automotive, the Georgia Tech Research Institute, and Southern Company. Um, in addition to your hackathon wins, uh, you're also president of the Georgia Tech Web Dev Club. Is that right? Yes. Club. Uh, president of the Young Americans for Liberty <laughs> and a mentor at Boys and Girls Club of America. You, you also were tired of, uh, of, of or thinking that there's you know, easier ways to organize data like cartoon families, which was amazing. Uh, and you launched your, your, your creator of www.zenow.io, that's Z-E-N-O-W.io. So if you want to uh, see data presented better, you can go there, right? Is that the idea? Absolutely. Uh, th there's a lot of great places you can get data out on the web. Uh, one of my favorites is data.gov. This was something created by the Obama in, uh, administration to take government data and make it well available. The problem with data.gov is that every single thing on that website is in a different format. You might get it in a CSV, or if you're really unlucky, a PDF. I wanted to have a platform where public data could be uploaded and easily accessible the same way every time. So I built a RESTful API with all of the industry standards that you would expect from a RESTful API. And 
It's just me on there right now. I just uh, launched it, but I'm hoping to try and see if there are people interested in really using this data and helping to aggregate this data so that it's more organized and people can use it a lot more quickly. And the way that this applies to things like artificial intelligence is we currently live in an era where artificial intelligence now needs more data than ever. Um, it was as mentioned before. And for AI to get this data, uh, it needs to be in somewhat of a formatted method so that the AI can understand what it is. This is why Google is winning the AI race right now, because they have already crawled the entire internet and uh, have the data of the internet formatted in a certain way. So uh, I wanted to create zenow.io in order to uh, Zen Try out. to Zenow, like Zen Russo. Russo Zenow. Zen Just like it. It could be Zenow, but I was uh, thinking, like, you know, Zen is pretty popular. Could have been Russo, but it was. Could have been Russo. You know, it's, it's spelled Zenow, but it's pronounced Bremen Luxury Yatched. <laughs> All right. Well, let me, let me switch to a personal question. Are you a cyborg with embedded AI? And if not, would you submit yourself to a Turing test? <laughs> Uh, no, I, that was actually not a question. I, I, I certainly hope that I would win the Turing test. Um, <laughs> All right. So, I don't know. so, so when you were at uh, the AT&T IoT Hackathon, you 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 used AI in your solution. You named it Taylor. Yes. And you walked away with the victory. Um, so, what was Taylor? How did you come up with it? And how did you leverage AI? Mm -hmm. And actually, first, before I go into that, you said uh, I was the team leader. Uh, the great thing about being a part of a, a hackathon with good friends who uh, you know are all com uh, technically competent is that uh, you are all able to work together and mesh together. So I would be, uh, I, I'd be tooting my horn a little too much if I said team leader. On yeah, that. just just for um, your teammates, since, since I made that up, just because it's better to promote. <laughs> Team captain rather than just team lackey. I think it was. <laughs> we all we all contributed a good amount to the. You project. did get good coffee. Um, I mean, you would go yeah. get that latte like no other guy. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so really, what was so, what was Taylor? What was um, the idea? So, so Taylor was an application. It was a hub for a wide number of uh, Internet of Things devices, and it the way that we controlled the hub is using AI. We used uh, API.ai, which is a service that will recognize what you're saying, your speech, and then translate it into actual commands that the computer can execute. So we first fed our speech into Watson's API, Watson's API for uh, speech to text, and then took that text and put it into API.ai to uh, allow you to use voice commands to control all of your devices that were connected to Taylor. Hmm. And um, so I'm uh, curious. Um, what were, what were some of the challenges you had in, in trying to put that together? Uh, so w when you're working with various frameworks like API.ai, um, they oftentimes, especially things that are somewhat new in the f field, um, AI is a, a emerging technology. There is a lot of research in, into it, but uh, there's not necessarily an industry standard for how to do things. So initially, we were actually using um, one of the Facebook alternatives. So th this is, it, it, does anyone uh, remember Mark Zuckerberg posted something about creating a chatbot uh, to control his life? Uh, th there is a Facebook equivalent to this uh, thing that will translate uh, to actual computing tasks. Um, and we were initially using that, but the challenges that we encountered in, with it is that um, 
it wasn't really designed for the kinds of tasks that we're doing. AIs are still very narrow. They're not general. Uh, so uh, we aren't going to be having any AIs anytime soon that can predict what disease you have and also play Go. Uh, so uh, because of this narrowness, we needed to switch over to a different, to, to use API.ai. And really the challenge in uh, AI right now is finding the exact algorithm that works for what you're doing because there isn't currently a catch-all. So you've, you've had a, uh, held a number of developer roles for small companies and big companies. Um, how would you describe the difference in how these two species of companies mm -hmm. are viewing AI and the role of AI? Um, so I, I guess I can, I, I haven't necessarily worked for a smaller company that's been using AI. Um, but I can talk to IBM's role with AI. You, everyone has heard of Watson. Uh, Watson has those commercials where they go up and say, hello, Ken Jennings, I have been learning Japanese. Um, and <laughs> IBM's approach to AI is exactly what you would think IBM is. It's extremely corporate. It's almost completely, it's a lot of marketing towards it. Um, IBM wants you to believe that you have this Watson thing, Watson can do everything. Watson just describes basically IBM's wing of artificial intelligence. So Health Watson isn't going to be able to do the uh, speech to text. They're all just separate algorithms, but they have this kind of um, finesse about them that gets companies to want to use that AI. So uh, IBM is just in a race to get uh, more and more advanced uh, AIs without necessary, and, and then after that, they think about how are we going to apply this to actual industry? How are we going to help our customers? In a startup, I would assume that uh, AIs are going to be used a lot more sparingly uh, in order to say, this is the problem that we need to solve. Um, and then you would have someone who is able to say, okay, this is how we're going to solve it. And a lot of the time, you don't actually need to know how to implement the full algorithm. You have things like Scikit, that's a SCI, like science, Scikit-learn, um, which are libraries that you can use to build certain things that have already become somewhat standard in artificial intelligence. Um, so there, there is a bit of a difference between the big company and the small company feel. I personally, like people will like whatever they want. I personally really like working for small companies because the, the, the problems that you're solving are a lot more related exactly to what the customers are. There are less resources to go around to just throw and say, throw, throw money at the AI, find something. But uh, the solutions that you find for it are often at times a lot more constrained and innovative. So, um, uh, what gets what gets you most excited about AI when it, as it relates to programming? What do you what do you sit there at in the middle of the night and not be able to sleep because you're so excited about it? Um, well, so I, I'm very excited about uh, where AI starts to come and enhance humans in their life. My optimum idea, ideology for how we're going to be using AI in the future is that we are going to become closer and closer and closer to being integrated with AI to the point where eventually the lines between us and artificial intelligence are going to be blurred. I'd say it's either that or we're going to stay separate and AI is going to eventually get a lot smarter than we are. That's way in the future. So are we the Neanderthal to the homo sapien right now? I mean, are we, are we going to get we, our DNA? 
DNA injected into AI and then we'll, we'll just disappear? Uh, eventually, very far in the future. I don't want to be doing any fear-mongering about the singularity. And if none of you, if any of you know what the singularity is, it's this point at which AI becomes, uh, it's able to improve itself faster than we're able to improve it, and it just goes out of control of humanity. We don't currently have enough computing power in the world to create the singularity, so we're not there yet. But um, I, I do like this idea of graying the lines, uh, augmenting ourselves, especially like direct augmentations to um, our minds with the artificial intelligence to improve uh, our lives. And hopefully uh, there's not going to be, the, the, the resistance I could see for that would be social resistance, mm -hmm. but hopefully as we begin to work more and more with computers, there will be less and less social resistance. Mm -hmm. So in your, your uh, volunteer work teaching youth, and we have uh, students from Grant Park uh, who are future problem solvers. Thank you for coming tonight. Uh, what advice would you give to them about learning to code? <laughs> um, so the, the best thing to learn to code is have some project in mind. It can be simple. Um, the, the best projects are usually like, I want to create a game. Maybe I want to recreate something like the first level of Mario. Um, and when you have a project in mind, then you will be encouraged to go out and do the research required to actually implement that project. Um, coding tutorials are great to start with and kind of get your feel of the technology, but really it's once you get that project that's uh, going to be important. And for people who are especially young, um, there are great tools out there for you to program with projects. I definitely recommend you going to uh, Scratch, which is an MIT initiative that Scratch .mit.edu. This is an excellent site. It's uh, um, designed for kids to be able to learn how to program. Um, when I am doing mentoring at the Boys and Girls Club, which unfortunately I'm not, I don't have time to do this semester, but back in the, the past I, I worked with Scratch with them, and uh, that uh, seemed to be a excellent technology that took out a lot of the pains of programming and uh, just focused on exactly what you need to do to uh, get uh, the idea of how to program. Mm. All right, so uh, before I let you go out of the hot seat, where can people find you on the interwebs? So uh, I will direct people to zenow.io. There is a button in the bottom right-hand corner that says contact and feedback. Uh, my contact information is on there. My Twitter, my Twitter is uh, O is for O. Um, and then, <laughs> yep. It's a, we're running out of Twitter names. Um, and uh, there's also a Discord chat on there, so you can chat with me live. Uh, if you ever want to start using Zeno, I will certainly be happy to help you out with that. So you can go to zeno.io to find my contact I just want to prepare you for the uh, hump day exchange bump in your traffic <laughs> that's going to be coming. So uh, Woo! hopefully we're going to double it to two. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just kidding. All right. Round of applause. You made it through the hot seat. As uh, we applause, we'll bring the, our other two guests here back to our round table portion. Um, you guys can uh, rock, paper, scissor for who gets what. Uh, I think your mic's on right there. So nope. comfortable with your microphones. Um, all right. So I've got a couple round table questions before we get to the audience questions. Um, first up, how will AI shape our lives in five years? And go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I certainly 
Like, I, I'm going to once again go against kind of the hyperbolic look at AI. Humans have a tendency to predict things are going to be a lot more advanced in the future than they actually will. Like you have a picture of HAL 9000, which is a general AI that's so advanced it can deduce the fact that uh, it's better to kill all the astronauts to save this mission. Oh, sorry, spoilers. If you haven't seen 2001 A Space Odyssey. That, that, uh, that happened 16 years ago, by the yeah. way. <laughs> um, so, so we're not going to be there at that point. Um, but what we will be seeing is uh, um, more, we'll be seeing things under the cover. We'll be seeing better implementations of things that you're already used to. So better predictions of your uh, like Netflix recommendations or YouTube recommendations. Uh, Driving cars were mentioned. Um, we also, uh, chatbots are currently, they have a lot to be envied. They, they are not necessarily the most diverse things, but as, as we continue, at least over the next five years, we'll see things that we're used to just become a lot more at ease. And it'll be, uh, it, it'll be under the covers, this uh, implementation, because we're used to talking to humans. We're used to interacting with humans. And the better AI gets, the more normal it will actually feel. So it's uh, nothing super spectacular. It, it, it's, it's super spectacular from a technical perspective. But uh, it won't be extremely noticeable. David, yeah. right? Yeah. No, I, okay. okay. I'd, I'd say, uh, so Jackson's right. Um, there's a lot of hype right now on AI. Um, he was being kind to IBM. Um, Watson is cute on Jeopardy, but it's consulting wear. I mean, IBM makes money off consulting. Um, there's, they do great press releases and great marketing, uh, as does GE, as does Accenture, and all the other guys that are trying to sell this fantastical thing they've built when really it's a thousand guys with spreadsheets is what they throw at it. Um, you know, it Jackson, I think, is right in that um, it will be there, but you won't see it in the next five years. We, uh, you know, tiny little startup in Atlanta uh, works with, work with uh, cable companies, so set-top boxes. Um, your set-top box is about to break. Don't bother calling me. I'm going to mail you one um, kind of thing, right? Uh, car batteries. Um, I, I drive a really old car, and I'm partly for this reason, um, but newer cars, you're being tracked. Um, all your data is being uploaded. The car's diagnostics are being constantly uploaded. Um, that data is actually being used for predictive analytics. Um, your car battery is about to die. Here's a $20 Sears uh, gift card, right, for the next uh, car battery. So there's money to be made there, right, which is why they do it. Um, so I think I'd have to agree. It's not, uh, I'm not going to be walking down the street with my, my phone having uh, AI, you know, answering my questions, what I think what Siri's weird attempt was, <laughs> right? Um, but it's, it's going to be around us, just not in our face yeah. in the next five years. You, you want to buck, buck the trend here, or are you, you going to go with this? No, no, I agree. I think that you look at, if you look at where technology was five years ago um, and compare it to where it is now, you'd be kind of amazed at how far it's come. But at, there was no point during the last five years where you were like, oh my gosh, this amazing new technology. Um, I drive probably the opposite car. I drive a Tesla. And it's Tesla's autopilot system, it's, it's adaptive cruise control. It's cruise control that doesn't run you into a wall and can follow lanes, kind of. Uh, it doesn't really feel nearly as, as awesome as kind of it's advertised. It's, it's, don't get me wrong, it's wonderful to be able to just kind of check out when you're in um, stop-and-go traffic for a while. But it doesn't feel like you're getting into um, Kit from Knight Rider to date myself. Um, <laughs> wow. So 
<laughs> so, but I think that you compare that to you where can, it, you can YouTube that if you don't know the yeah. references. Yeah. It's an amazing cultural touch point. The original was uh, amazing. The new one, yeah, let's see. Um, but the so you, you compare the you know what we have now to five years ago, and it's amazing. But you're not going to have that moment of oh my gosh, everything just changed. Um, there might be a moment like that at some point in the future with AI. I think like the iPhone was kind of a moment like that where it was a a radically new device right now. But I don't see anything in the next five years that's going to be be quite like that. I think the, the very first time you get into a true self-driving car where you plug in your address and you know you don't even face the road might be a moment like that. But that's that's pretty far I'd out. say that I'm still stuck at you driving a Tesla. I must be in the wrong line of work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, not five years, but kind of the direction we're headed. What, uh, what movie, uh, a book, Netflix series, video game, you think is going to be a good reference point for where we really are headed? So I think, so I kind of think of that in two different ways. I think one, what AI is going to mean for us as a society, and then what that's going to mean for us individually. And I kind of touched on this when I was um, in the chair on my left a little while ago. The but hot I think, seat. Yes, the hot seat. The hot, um, hot seat. It's really not a very hot seat. So um, <laughs> I think the first question is going to be, what does AI mean for us kind of as a society? And I look at some, a lot of video games actually kind of touch on this. Um, the Metal Gear Solid um, series touches on this, where AI is used as a tool for, by, you know, dictators or evil people to be in charge and to run everything without the the classical problems of, you know, being in charge and running everything, actually having control over everything. And I think that's something that we'll have to wrestle with is whether AI equalizes people or centralizes power to a very small number of people. Even aside from that, in a future where AI can do pretty much everything, um, what does that mean for us individually? If I don't need to work for a living and really can't do anything that AI can't do better than me, what is the purpose of my life. And for that, I look at um, Wally actually as a really interesting example of in a future where everything is supplied automatically and people don't have to work, what do you do for fulfillment? We're hardwired to want to advance, to want to grow, to want to, to succeed, to want to survive. And once that is permanently satiated, what, what do we do with our time? So I'd actually like to expand on that a bit. Um, so a lot of times people will say the large threat for AI is that we're going to take away a lot of jobs. And th- these aren't just manufacturing jobs, which are the ones that have generally been taken away by robots, but these are also jobs that are in the more intellectual community. A lot of times things like uh, lawyers and doctors get uh, attacked a lot for this. And there is some concern to be had there. Of course, the traditional lawyer, the traditional doctor, is not going to survive the next decade or two um, because we are going to uh, have uh, artificial intelligence uh, algorithms that are able to do these kinds of diagnoses of whether law or medical. But uh, I do have a reason to be optimistic when it comes to these professions. Uh, I do think that these professions will still be around, but they will be changed. Um, So as an example, let's take the lawyer. Right now, we have a legal system that is extremely slow. You have to wait a super long time in order to uh, actually get a lawyer, a publicly appointed lawyer, and uh, go to court, um, which somewhat violates the Bill of Rights, depending on your interpretation of that. Um, But with AI, what we can do is we can allow people 
to have the tools to be lawyers without the complex Harvard training that you see. So this actually opens up the opportunity for a lot more people to come into this profession. They don't need to memorize all the laws. They can use the tools of AIs and be lawyers. And overall, our legal system gets a lot faster and we can process a lot more people. So AI does take away some jobs. But uh, there are also instances where it will add a new kind of job. But the thing that we need to be wary about is that transition period. We currently have an economy that's set up for something that is old. It's uh, after the Industrial Revolution, uh, which is why I am super happy about things like Udacity, which help people train for the new skills of the next technological era. And as technology progresses faster and faster and faster, we're going to uh, be seeing people who need to be retrained multiple times in their life and that's why technology like <laughs> that is super important we didn't pay him to say that, <laughs> but I think you're, you're touching on something really important too that like when we replaced lawyers as a job part of the reason for that is we also drove down the cost of legal consulting in the first place mm -hmm. if everyone can be their own lawyer and access those relate uh, those uh, those resources then it's you removed a job but you also removed that as a cost to everyday people anyway so you're kind of driving down costs overall. The same thing applies to, to manufacturing in that entire area is that as you automate that process, as you get to a point where things are both produced and maintained automatically without a, you know, a constant paying of salary, you're driving down the cost of those things as well. And as long as those benefits then percolate out to everybody, then we all stand to, to live in a wonderful world. Roy? Blade Runner? Blade Runner. <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. Which one? Uh, Which yeah. way? Was it the editor's cut? The director's cut, sorry. Director's the director's cut. cut. Right. The editor's cut, obviously, yeah. it's redundant. It's right. the editor the editor's cut. That's the, the cutting. <laughs> yeah. The director. Um, so, to, to, I mean, I, and I was being, uh, trying to be funny with Blade Runner. Um, I, I, I'm typically a, a, a pessimist as an engineer. I think <laughs> we tend to be pessimists. Um, I'm an optimist with this, um, and maybe that's the economics uh, in me, right, is, is looking at, if you, want, if you want to go back to the Industrial Revolution um, as an example, um, Industrial Revolution happened, jobs got automated, um, right, <laughs> it's automated not by today's standards, right, but automated. Um, unemployment, people actually, more people were actually employed uh, because of that. Um, what makes this time different? I, I think, you know, for better or worse, the, the system we have uh, in this country and parts of the world um, can absorb the shocks. People adapt. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not overly worried about this mass unemployment because uh, now trucks can drive themselves. Um, if even current state of things, um, with people complaining that jobs are going overseas and manufacturing and all that stuff, they've actually lost more jobs to automation uh, than jobs going overseas. Uh, that seems to be kind of drowned out in, in the political discourse, right, on, on, on TV. Um, yet, unemployment is still at a rather healthy, you know, natural unemployment rate, right? It's hovering around 4 or 5%, right? So I, I think the proof isn't there to have this paranoid, you know, dystopian thing. I, I am worried about how AI will be used um, by humans, not what AI will do on its own. Like, does it become sentient mm -hmm. and conscious? Yeah, I'm, I'm not worried about stuff like that. Yeah, just uh, fiction, but. I'm more worried about things like the NSA, mm -hmm. um, our own government, other governments, right? Using um, 
AI and mass data collection against their own people or other people, right? We're, we're really good at being bad at each other <laughs> as humans, right? Completely agree. Um, and there, we've already seen use cases as to the point. Um, AIs are sometimes confidently referred to as this is the right answer, but they're just as good as the data that's given to them. Uh, we saw, I, I don't remember if it was Microsoft or Google, uh, they created this uh, rec image recognition software. But this image recognition software turned out to be actually pretty racist because what it started doing is it started recognizing people of African-American descent as monkeys. Uh, which is absolutely something that you do not want to do as an AI company. But the reason why it did that was because they, their training set was mostly white and Asian people. And they didn't have a lot of people of African-American descent. So once they added that into their training set, once they added that into their data, they were able to get a more accurate output. So being completely confident that because an AI is something objective, that its output is going to be correct, is very dangerous, especially if the training set is horrible. And another similar example is Tay, uh, which was a Microsoft chatbot uh, that, yeah. uh, oh, yes. that was 4chan a got a hold of and yeah. uh, also made it to have but some 4chan trained it in a different way. Yeah, <laughs> trained it a different way. Um, so you need to be careful about the data yeah. set, and that's probably the largest threat, the largest, the was, scariest thing. That was the AI. one where it was, it was supposed to be like a, a teenage mm -hmm. uh, voice, and then because of the responses they were getting, it, it learned to be very racist and bigoted, right? Yes, that's mm -hmm. right. it did. Yeah. I think the, the, the Industrial Revolution example is brought up a lot as an example of what could happen in the, in the future with the uh, AI as it'll open up new jobs just the way the Industrial Revolution did. I think the reason why, my counter-argument at least with that would be, what makes this different is in the Industrial Revolution, we took a, a small portion of what humans can do and we automated it or we streamlined it. And so we, in turn, made our living out of the rest of the stuff that only we could do. We're potentially on the cusp of doing away with the idea of there being something that only we can do. The Industrial Revolution took some of the, you know, the manufacturing stuff that we physically are able to, to do with our bodies. But if we can automate our minds to the point where it can do everything, it's equivalent to us, that presents some different challenges. I think you're still stuck with the economics of it. Um, the fact that, I mean, we, we could cite Uber as an example uh, if they're still in business in 10 years, right? <laughs> uh, you know, they want to they wanna have self-driving cars, right? Uh, and, and not pay their employees or non-employees, right? Whatever. Um, they would have to manufacture cars. Mm -hmm. um, is that economically feasible uh, for them? They're just going to lose more money faster, right? Um, the Industrial Revolution l kicked off the whole, the, the, the manufacturing automation, or the automated manufacturing uh, revolution, really, right? Um, but we didn't automate everything, right? So I, I think it's... We automated where, where uh, it made economic sense uh, to automate. And you have to think it took this long just to get to the point of where we are today where you can fully automate an automobile factory, right? Um, I mean, that's, that's a long time. You know, will AI be there in 100 years where we're all uh, completely automated out of jobs? Um, I, just, I just don't see it. I think, I think humans are, are adaptable um, and, and resilient. And, you know, I study yeah, uh, and capitalism. And so. I, I, think, I think it does get back to the social systems, right? So you have if you really boil everything down to what we do in our society or societal network is, is be able to put food on the table, mm -hmm. 
have secure, you know, security and home and, and, and really what we've learned here in the last election cycle is, is dignity, right? Sense of dignity. Did we learn that? Yeah. <laughs> Where did we learn this? Uh, uh, different dignity than I did. Well, the need, need for, uh, <laughs> so I don't know. I, I, I'm still wrestling with uh, the, this data set. Um, but uh, the, the, the fact is, though, it really is about, as a species, can we you know, survive and procreate? And, and our, our societal and economic systems seem to need to be up, upgraded. We need, we need a... A new version of this. To comment on the social implications of uh, all this and uh, making sure that uh, the people who uh, are able to run the AIs are more open and we don't have this concentrated class of people who own the AIs, uh, there are a few threats that are out there. I see one as being um, patent law. And uh, we, we've seen things like the pharmaceutical industry go out of control with the, the patent law to the point where only the large uh, pharmaceutical companies are the ones that are able to propose things. If we see this kind of policy being applied to algorithms, to AIs, where only the large companies, IBM, Google, uh, are able to patent these AIs, and, and are the sole ones that are able to run these algorithms for years upon years, then we hinder the ability for independent entrepreneurs to use these algorithms to find new ways to apply them. So I think that the best thing that, from a government perspective in helping shape society on this, is to uh, create policy that encourages entrepreneurs, independent people, to start applying the knowledge that they have without any kind of restrictive policies that favor large companies that already have the power. I'll, uh, I'll mention that we actually have a patent pending. On, uh, <laughs> so you're part of the problem. On, uh, I may be part of the problem. Uh, but yeah, we have a patent pending on the um, uh, the generation of features uh, that we train our models on. Um, it's completely uh, automatic, right? So, Well, I'm, I'm going to open this up to the questions from the audience um, uh, on pins and needles to find out what we have here sitting, asking around. But do you guys, before we go, uh, do you, and before we go to the general audience, do you guys have any questions or do you want to uh, throw down the gauntlet and, uh, against one of your fellow guests and ask a question that's beyond their capacity to answer? Uh, when are you graduating? I'm graduating in December. Are you a job? For a job? Do you have a job in December? <laughs> so because I really want to work in the startup world and the turnover rate in the startup world is 18 months, it's harder for me to predict what job I'm going to I'm have. I'm sure Predicto might be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> got plenty, you got plenty of cash. So. <laughs> He's got money, money, money. <laughs> And they're going to Europe. How do you feel about Europe? Europe's, I, I actually, one of my favorite cities to be in was Brussels. Um, okay. it, it was a pretty fun city because it's not too touristy, but it also has the European kind of condensed feel. But that doesn't have a lot to do with it. We AI. do business in Belgium. <laughs> you like chocolate? Uh, all right. So anybody in the audience, you come on up here to the microphone and introduce yourself. We got, got a crew coming up. So, come on up. Who's asking? Oh, this is a hard question. He's doing research on <laughs> this it. Is notes. This is notes. I, I have to warn you guys. Eugene Herr from Russia and the Ukraine. This is going to hack me and take my credit card numbers? <laughs> is that what's happening? I've gotten this voice note before. <laughs> Hello, Eugene. <laughs> that was really good. Wow. How are you doing today? <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. 
While we wait for that, I wanted to comment real quick since it's um, our middle schoolers here. The time when I got really excited over programming was when I realized I could write a program that would do my math homework for me. <laughs> I could just write it once, just put the numbers in. It would generate all the um, everything for me. So. When I was 13, I was the first AI to beat the Turing test. I tricked humans into thinking I was a young boy. Oh, this one. Here's my question. European lawmakers have proposed that robots be equipped with emergency kill switches. Would you support a kill phrase for all AIs? Such as, are you a bot? That all AIs would be required to answer in the affirmative. Could humans then force me to time out, shut down, or even die? Do you want to kill Eugene? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that question, I, I, we, we touched on that a little bit earlier, that you know, there's the fear, I think, propagated a lot by movies and the media about AI is going to become sentient, and like iRobot, it's going to decide that we are the biggest danger to ourselves and lock us all in our homes. And I don't think that's the, the fear. And so I think something like this, the fear wouldn't necessarily be the AIs are going to become self-aware and we need a kill switch to terminate them right away. The fear would be that they'll all have that except for one. And so whoever has the one that is impervious to that can suddenly shut down all everything else and... You know, uh, nobody dominate. unilaterally uh, disarms, right? Right. <laughs> um, I, I, I will say that, in, in my view, I would agree uh, with European lawmakers. I view it as, as just turning off a toaster. Yeah, you have a power it, switch. I mean, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> power switch. Would it be okay if I turn myself back on after my time out? That's when the <laughs> hammer comes out. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so no. Yeah, I, I do want to echo this sentiment that uh, there is a lot of policy being proposed that is very reactionary to things like movies. And just to stress yeah. that general AIs, ones that can actually think about uh, destroying humanity, uh, we don't have the power to create them. Because usually what algorithms are, and if there are any computer scientists in here, they are NP-hard problems, um, which means that as we get more and more data on them, they will just multiply in complexity beyond control. We don't have enough computing power in the world to uh, do the, to create such an AI. Now, there are possibilities in fields like quantum computing, which uh, takes a few shortcuts, but we have not yet created an algorithm in quantum computing that we think can be applied to AIs in this way. In fact, our current quantum computers are a lot worse <laughs> than our modern computers just because of the difficulty it is to maintain quantum states. Do androids dream of electric sheep? <laughs> sheep are boring. Do you have any medical data I can crunch while I'm sleeping? Let's say you tell me. <laughs> Eugene. There we go. Thank you, Eugene. <laughs> All right. Do we have any, uh, any uh, meat bags that want to talk? Any humans? Yeah. You have real questions. All right. We have our problem solvers. Future problem solvers. Who are you? My name's Alexa. Not that. Not that no, Alexa. No, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Alexa. That's a real <laughs> <laughs> Not the Amazon Alexa. <laughs> um, how can we use AIs to prevent identity theft? Ooh. So that's already being done, right? So <laughs> fraud detection is is big. Uh, I guess fertile grounds for AI. Um, there's actually companies in town, I believe, that do that. Mm -hmm. uh, there's one company in town. I think Pindrop, that uses, um, I guess we can call it AI, uh, mm -hmm. machine learning, 
Um, it's solved. So it's not AI anymore. Yeah, based based on uh, based on your cell phone signal, your the sound of your voice, uh, weird metadata sounds that are on your phone to identify that it is actually you and not some Russian Ukrainian guy, mm -hmm. right, posing as you. Yeah. Well, plus I think you you mentioned that you know, our cars are tracking us, everything's tracking us, and that can be used for very nefarious purposes. At the same time, it can help us with that as well, that sure. even if you, you pinpoint my profile and decide I'm going to make exactly the kind of purchase that David would make at the time of day he would make it with a comprehensive enough system, it can say, sure, David often shops at Target at that hour of the day, but he wasn't there at that time because his car was down at tech. And you know, aggregate the data we have across all these different channels to really pinpoint who you really are, where you where you really so are and if that was really you. A computer can do that faster, mm -hmm. um, analyze the data and match a pattern, right? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. all it's doing at that yeah. point, right? And, and um, actually these computers are oftentimes able to uh, pr confirm identity in ways that humans wouldn't be able to confirm it. Like you see the new CAPTCHA system where it's just click a button and it says, oh, you're a human instead of a, you're a robot. That's, that's stuff that humans looking at that data wouldn't be able to recognize. But now we have AIs that are able to even better recognize these uh, things. Excellent. Any other questions? All right. Hi, my name is Gur. Um, have, any, have any other AIs ever been used for identity theft crime? Any other AIs? Been used to, to actually perform the crime or... Yeah, um, future future crime solvers or problem solvers. <laughs> this is good. Atlanta is a great city for info security. Yeah, Tons really of is. info security. Uh, the, the, the U.S. government has built uh, viri. Is that right? No, viruses. I have no idea. Uh, the plural virus um, that have attacked um, specifically uh, the Iran Iranian uh, nuclear reactor. Right. The the centrifuges were attacked. I'm not sure if that qualifies as an AI uh, or machine learning uh, aspect, but it was, it was an extremely well-targeted piece of software that attacked uh, machinery in one specific place on the entire planet, right, uh, by design. So, was that Stuxnet? Was that what it was? That's Stuxnet, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. so. yeah it's really interesting to read about. It's, so I, I'm sure it has been. I, uh, my question would actually be more, how much of it do we know about? Because for, for things like that, their goal would be to prevent us from knowing that it happened. So I'm sure it's happened to a greater extent than we, than we know about. It's, it's much easier to this day still to do some social engineering if you want to hack something uh, than, than you know, I mean, like phishing attacks and things like that, mm -hmm. right? Then, then actually have to deal with all the software and hacking servers and stuff like that. Although with the, with the software, you could do it at scale, so. <laughs> yeah. I didn't need theft at scale. There you go. You can automate phishing attacks. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, anyone? Uh, any other folks? We got more. More folks. Come on up, Arjun. All right. Who are you? All right. Um, I'm Arjun. I'm a fourth year computer science major here at Georgia Tech. I actually took the knowledge based data class. Cool. Yeah. So <laughs> I, did, I recognized you. So I was like, is that him? <laughs> um, yeah. But my question would be uh, so you guys talked about the economic impacts of AI in the like, far future. So, what about um, any thoughts on like the human race itself as AI like progresses and it can take over a bunch of the jobs? It can do a lot of this stuff. So, like, for example, up till now, um, back like 100 years ago, say like humans were a lot more adept at finding their way around, going places, looking at maps and actually like reading it, figuring out where they're going. Uh, now with like Google Maps and all the automated map technology, like people don't know how to get anywhere without Google Maps anymore. So like say like a bunch of years in the future when they start taking over a bunch of the jobs in our daily lives, 
Um, what do you think is the impact on the human race itself mm-hmm. as in, t- in terms of like devolving almost? I think it's interesting because you're touching on one of my favorite topics that you touched on earlier, so I'm glad you brought it up. Um, you mentioned, um, sorry, I'm looking at um, Jackson. <laughs> uh, I mentioned the idea that over time we're going to merge with AI yep. and become more and more you know, cyborgs like from you know, Star Trek or anything like that. But what's interesting is that's not unique to AI. That's been going on for mm-hmm. millennia. Um, a pencil is an extension of what you can do and think about. You can think about more when you have a pencil and paper in front of you than you can think about when you're on your own. You can think about more when you have the internet in front of you because it's kind of a what we call a distributed memory or a distributed knowledge base of everything. And so that's exactly what we're seeing is that, you know, a long time ago we individually just in a sorry, in a vacuum were, you know, more able to maybe find our way around because we weren't dependent on devices. But those devices have now become part of the way we approach tasks have become extensions of ourselves so if there comes a day when those things you know disappear then yeah it's like you know losing a a limb or something like that it's losing something that we've grown to to depend on Um, but i think you're exactly right that what we're seeing is just a continuation of a trend where we are constantly merging with technology and incorporating it into the way we approach new problems And, and this field is less about developing new ais ais are going to advance in at the same rate that they're going or maybe at a faster rate and it's more about creating the interfaces that allow us to communicate with the ais uh, i am personally very excited about bcis brain computer interfaces we are a long ways from having a proper bci that's able to allow let us communicate with the computer i do work with the emotive which is currently the uh, most popular commercial brain computer interface out there and it's very easy for it to detect when i'm blinking but <laughs> if i like wanted to solve a calculus problem then I, there's no way for me to communicate that to a computer so as we get more and more advanced bci technology we're going to be able to merge more and use these ais to a better better advantage um i th- i think it's a long outlook uh before we get to the point that that we're um um, having a struggle with AI everywhere taking our jobs. I mean, you're, you're at 100 years, I think, out. And sad to say, we probably have a lot more problems as a, as a, as a race on this planet that'll, that'll hit us first um, between wars and famines and droughts and the, the random asteroid and, uh, you know, global warming. And you can I, predict that, though, right? I, I, yeah. I, I, given the data, I can predict anything with my patent. Uh, <laughs> so only you can. Only, this overlord that yes. I'm warning against. Yeah. Pay me. Uh, but, yeah, I think, I, I hate to say it's a non-issue and, and diminish the, the, the question or the concern, but it, I, in our lifetime, in our children's lifetimes, probably non-issue. Yeah. Yeah, it gets me thinking about um, another, the, the previous Kevin Kelly book, What Technology Wants. This is the whole uh, uh, thesis in that one is that uh, the technology is really just an extension of the, the human species and it should be treated as another animal or plant kingdom, uh, but it's going to be informed by what the human species needs. So, so the idea that technology is, is, he calls it the technium. So <laughs> if, you're, if you're looking for some good books, very accessible, Kevin Kelly's the guy to read. So. Um, well, we have reached that magical time where uh, I've got to shut the lights off uh, because I can't pay my power bills beyond this. Um, no, I'm joking. I can pay the power bills. It's, just, funny we, round it's, about, it's, it's, it's about time where people have already fallen asleep at home. Uh, and this podcast has now put 17, uh, 17 people to sleep by the time we've reached this point. So this is great. And, and half of them are in this That room. was predicted. Yeah. AI. Yeah. AI. They're all eighth grade. Nice. That's right. So... So uh, 
thanks for joining us tonight, everybody, for the, the episode, uh, this episode of Hump Day Exchange. Uh, thank you to our guest, Dr. David Joyner and Roy Russo. Thank you. Uh, Jackson Morgan, our partners, Sandbox, ATL, ATDC, and Georgia Tech Scheller College of Business. Um, be sure to check out techsquareatl.com for regular stories about TechSquare. Learn more about the Sandbox ATL membership network at sandboxatl.com. And if you're interested in booking your breakthrough event at bookthegarage.com, you can do that. Um, final thank you to you, our, our listeners and our audience members. A round of applause for you being there and our future problem solvers in America. Um, if, you, if you like what you're hearing, we'd, we'd, love to, uh, we'd love if you would share this podcast with your friends. Um, and so take me out with a nice uh, warm round of applause for everyone. Until we see the Campbell signal shining in the light again, this has been the Hump Day Exchange. TechSquare ATL is a media studio connecting you to the heart of Atlanta's tech community. Copyright Sandbox Communities, LLC.